Insights and wisdom lie within every business decision. Welcome to the Leaders by Ivy podcast, where we discover hidden narratives and unlock key learnings for our own leadership and career journeys. Hello, everyone. I'm Sharon Hodgson, Dean of the Ivy Business School. I'm excited to be hosting the final episode of season two of the Leaders by Ivy podcast. My guest today is my friend and colleague, Alan Shepard, president of Western University. We covered so many important topics like community resilience during the pandemic, driving lifelong learning, and the value of partnerships to achieve great outcomes. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So I wanted to start today's discussion with um, taking you back to our first, the first time that we met. It, to remind you, it was in March of 2019, and it was before either of us actually officially started our roles here at Western. And in that first meeting, we spent a lot of time talking about what inspired us to take these respective roles. And your answer was phenomenal. Why don't you start by sharing with the audience a little bit about what did inspire you to take a role like this? I'm always interested in opportunity, and I had a sense that Western, already strong, an already strong institution, had great opportunities ahead of it. And I felt like I had wrapped up my work in Montreal. I was, I was ready for a new role and a new, a new challenge for myself. And part of what, I, what drew me to Western was uh, it's, got a, it's got an amazing and great world-class faculty, and it gets the world's best students. And it has resources, and it has a beautiful campus. So what's next for it? And I, I thought that it was ready I, I sensed in the community a readiness and a hunger, actually, to be uh, uh, an even more influential institution nationally and internationally and, and to, to really go for it. And I, I liked that environment. I thought there was great opportunity for me and for you, for all of us. And now we find ourselves in quite a different situation. We're 18 months into our respective tenures and we're eight months into a global pandemic. Has anything about your hopes and dreams for the university changed? and any strengths that you had have seen in the school that maybe you didn't know when you first came here, but really shone during this last little while? So I think my hopes and dreams are essentially the same as they were. Uh, they're a little bit delayed and slowed down by the pandemic, but that would be true for everybody uh, listening to us, be true for all of us in our professional lives, maybe our personal lives too, but certainly professionally. Uh, everybody's uh, had to pivot a bit from what they thought they were gonna be doing it's been quite an extraordinary challenge um, to try and lead a public institution under these circumstances. I will say that the community has completely rallied, and that's been uh, thrilling and gratifying. And to go back to my earlier comment about being ready for a challenge, uh, if I hadn't seen that, I'd be worried because uh, I think the resilience that's been shown and the, and the ambition and the, the drive for quality and for influence and impact is just very strong in the Western community. And I think those are really important ingredients for a, for a really uh, bright, bright future. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's been difficult in everyone. What I've, what I've been really struck by is the kindness, actually, the way in which the community has rallied as a community. And I mean, uh, the students for sure, the faculty, but also the staff of the university. They're the backbone of the place. They, they keep this place going. Every, people are doing the, the cleaning of the, of the spaces. Everyone's felt like they were on the same team and they cared for the place and they cared for Western success and our students' success and our faculty success. 
And that's really uh, been uh, so gratifying to see that and participate in that. So I'm really thrilled by that. Sticking with the pandemic and topics of the pandemic, um, early on I can remember having lots of debates amongst the deans, yourself and Andy, uh, the provost, about what we were going to do in the fall and how we were going to respond to this pandemic. We made a really tough but I think important decision, which was to go mixed mode and to offer a residential opportunity for our students. Are you happy with that decision? I'm, I'm completely happy with the decision. Uh, and, and I haven't wavered on that. So I've had moments where I go like, oh, this is complicated. For sure it is. So we, we, we had to make decisions about what we would do in September. We had to make them back in April, May, and June in order to be ready for September. And the fundamental decision was to close the place down physically and be entirely online or to sort of make a run for the border, as it were, to, to decide, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be partly face-to-face, -face, and what does that look like? It poses a lot more complications. It would be just easier to say, nope, we're all, we're all in line. See you, see you in a year from now. That didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel like that would be what the Western community would want. It didn't, it didn't feel ambitious enough or bold enough or, um, or hopeful enough, I guess I would say. So it was a very complex set of decisions that were made with the deans, with the uh, uh, other academic leaders and other institutional leaders, a complex set of uh, discussions, negotiations, what will we need? And what we needed depended on where you sat. So uh, if you were in the physical operations, you needed to know that we could change all the air filters to be uh, higher grade filters that would filter out uh, viruses. You needed to know that we could change the airflow or the, uh, the volume of exchange of air in different buildings. If you were in student health, you needed to know that we could run a testing center and what would that look like and whose permission would we need. If you were a prof or a staff member in an academic unit, you needed to know, am I going to teach online? Am I going to teach face-to-face? -face? Uh, how will I be safe? Uh, what will that look like? And, and we made a couple of great decisions. One was we asked the profs themselves, do you want to teach online or do you want to teach face-to-face? And unless there were like operational reasons like medicine, dentistry, or so forth, uh, we pretty much allowed people to make their own decisions. And people made great decisions for themselves. So they had family situations or whatever. Um, and we were able to make great accommodations. And I haven't had a single person say to me, I was required to do something, you know, I didn't want to do. Uh, and that made people feel really safe. So they made their decisions. Uh, and that's been great. Um, we had most of our staff working at home, and we've been gradually bringing people back, and that's worked very well. Um, what I've heard from students and their families has been interesting. So I heard through the summer, we had the strongest summer enrollment we've ever had, and the strongest fall enrollment we've ever had in the history of the university. And some of that was because we're a great place, and, and some of it was um, people were admiring Western's decisions and they were respecting what we were trying to accomplish. And they understood that it might not be perfect. And we have had a couple of outbreaks, small outbreaks, nothing like what you've seen in the U.S. where there are like thousands of people infected in, a, in any given university. Here we had very small outbreaks. Uh, they were all related to off-campus stuff. They were not related to teaching or research uh, at all. And so uh, I would give ourselves a very high mark both for the effort and also for the outcomes. So. And, and A for effort, but also I would say an A slash A minus for outcomes. I've heard a few complaints that the quality of online instruction is not the same, and it probably isn't, like to be honest, like we shouldn't pretend that it's just identical. It's not identical. But then I say, well, remember it's a pandemic. It's like a worldwide emergency, and we've pivoted pretty well. 
And one of the cool things we did was we hired about 300 of our own students this summer to help our profs convert their courses. So it was kind of a co-creation of some of these first-year courses, and some of that stuff may stick. That's pretty interesting. When you think about coming out of the pandemic and even uh, some of the things during the pandemic and the relationship with government, and we, did, we had to work a lot with government, um, but it hasn't been really clear if and how government might play in our exit from the pandemic related to funding models and things like that. Any ideas of what we should be thinking about with respect to that relationship and are they going to lower tuitions? Are they going to open up tuitions again, grant money? What should we be thinking about? Uh, well, that's a complicated one. So recall about two years ago, the government of Ontario reduced our domestic tuition by 10% and then froze it for two years and we're in the end of that second year freeze now and we're waiting for a government framework going forward. Um, that was a very expensive move for Western and although uh, you know we're a healthy institution and we could absorb it this time, if those kinds of things stick, uh, they do eventually uh, uh, risk quality. And I think all, all Western alumni and all of us want a really high quality experience. So excellence costs money, it's not free. I mean, my first point. Um, I understand what the government's doing uh, in the pandemic in a much larger context, which is around the relationship between uh, the idea of a public good of a university degree What's the role of universities in creating prosperity for Ontario or for Canada? So I just see it in a much larger landscape. Um, I'm concerned, I think, all university leaders are about whether there'll be shifting public opinion that uh, university education is a private good, uh, that students should bear more of that tuition, or, or, or even an environment where your tuition is cut and capped, but your grant from the government doesn't compensate for that. So actually, you just reduce the operating funds you have. And, you know, we're, uh, we run relatively lean as institutions go. We try not to, to waste our money. We, we're trying to accomplish many things, great research, great teaching, community service. Uh, it's a complex environment. So I do, I do have worries about uh, where it's all going. We're waiting on this uh, decision from the government. And um, all I would say is excellence is expensive. Like if, if you want a high quality operation, it's hard to do it on the cheap. You mentioned both teaching and research in the last comments that you made, and uh, it's been a significant discussion over the course of the pandemic because there has been more attention to teaching than we ever have in the past in you know quantity here, uh, maybe a little bit at the expense of research. And these are two huge and very important contributions that academic institutions make in society. How do you see those both evolving as we move forward with the strategy. So uh, I always think of research as uh, solving problems that the world needs to have solved and making new ideas and new things. So, um, and what I'm hearing uh, both nationally across Canada and internationally from other uh, people in my role and other roles, other data I've seen uh, across the globe, the amount of research productivity is down sharply since the pandemic. It's particularly down sharply among, among women profs because we know that um, when all the kids stay home, the women profs are on the front lines of caring for their children. And so we're, we're, mo we're well aware of that phenomenon. Um, going, so uh, uh, the research productivity, I think, is down somewhat at Western, but it's down, I've heard it right across Canada from other leaders. So in the relative competition of things, although we're down, everybody's down. <laughs> so um, 
What I would say going forward is uh, I try never to trade off research versus teaching. I try to see them as integrated whenever possible. And the best kind of teaching, I think, from my own experiences as a student and, and now as an academic leader is that is teaching that's inspired by research. So the prof is working on some set of questions. They may be intellectual, they may be philosophical questions, or they may be data questions or scientific questions, whatever they may be. And they're driven by a set of questions and that they bring that into the classroom. And so the students are inspired to come here and learn with us because they're not only getting all the received wisdom, but they're getting like the new stuff, the cutting edge, the where's it all going. And I think that's the kind of thing at a place like Western really contributes to a university student's education that you might not get everywhere, which is this, like, you're really on the front lines of what's, what's the, what are the new ideas, where are things happening? And like, an, like the, the vaccine development would be a perfect example. We're doing a lot of that work right here at Western. So anytime you have a chance to engage students in that kind of, that kind of research and the teaching follows from it, it's a beautiful thing. I would say we have spent a lot more time on, on teaching this year. We've pivoted. Um, moving things online is hard. It's hard. It's really hard. And it's, it's not intuitive for most of us. Um, and it, um, you, you want to do it well. Our problem one, they want to do a good job in the classroom, whether that's by Zoom or whatever. So they're, they're working hard at it. I know that. I'm really excited to be part of the strategy, and I'm thankful that you asked me to engage in, in the strategy work that the Western is taking on. One of the areas that we started to talk about in the last sessions was the future of work and some of the issues that we're seeing or challenges we're seeing with respect to the half-life of skills diminishing very quickly and the number of career transitions that are likely to happen of students of the future as they go into the workforce. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your feelings of how the university participates in a market like that, in you know, lifelong learning, and what types of skills we're going to need to make sure that we're helping to develop in students and in these lifelong learners. Thanks for that question. So, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you're part of the strategy piece too. That's uh, your expertise is really valuable to us, and uh, I'm grateful for your for your role there. I'll come to that to the strat planning in just a second. So. There's some skills that are kind of foundational and fundamental, and, and they're transportable across careers and jobs and so forth. So uh, the ability to read, write, think, synthesize, analyze, uh, incredibly important. Doesn't, it doesn't matter. Even if you think you're getting a data job, the ability to like communicate to your employer, your boss, the board, whatever, super important. Numeracy skills, also very important in this generation, for sure. Certain things like learning this, this language or that language in computer science, like some of the languages stick around for a long time, but others don't. And so those are kind of uh, they're, they're, they're trans, transitional skills. You can, you can kind of go in and out of them. The, the really interesting, the, the real prize here that most universities are not very good at, and I would put us in that category, is the lifelong learning piece. Um, it's got to be true that in a world that's moving so fast where you have so many careers and jobs and things are shifting so quickly that we also need to be able to upgrade our skills in a fairly seamless way that, doesn't require us to like, you know, move our house or, you know, whatever. We should be able to, in a, in a fairly straightforward way, uh, refresh our skills, learn some new skills, just stay intellectually alive, whatever it may be. And um, universities aren't very good at that. Historically, people said, oh yeah, continuing education. And that meant something like when you're retired and you're bored, you do something. Uh, it, it means more than that now, and it has for a while. But um, there's still kind of a stigma, like people don't want to teach in continuing education because it's, it's not the real meat and potatoes of the, of the institution. 
I did hear one of my U15 uh, University of, uh, Research Intensive University colleagues say the other day that uh, his continuing education uh, program is now at the center of the university, at the core of the university. I didn't really believe him. Um, I, I know that he wanted to have that be true, and it may someday be true, but we've got a long way to go. And there is a huge market there. There's a huge opportunity for us uh, to engage not only our alumni, but also the alumni of other institutions. Um, to, uh, and myself, you know, I, I love to go back to, I love to go to law school personally, but and I'm a bit long in the tooth for it, but maybe not too late. It's interesting that you describe it like that. One of the words that I uh, describe when I think about how we want to create the students of the future and the skills we want, we need to teach them to be intellectual athletes, that they've got to constantly be going back mm -hmm. and getting those new skills and learning how to learn and learning how to grow over time. That's a great phrase. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow that if that's okay. Intellectual athletes, that's right. You're welcome to yeah, use it. that's right. That's a really good way to think of it. Sticking with the strategy, so in the last session that we had, you shared a lot of data about where the university stands right now. And um, one of the things that you highlighted was in the context of Ontario, we're really a mid-sized university. And I wondered if you thought that that was a strength, a weakness, and how you think about scale as we go forward. Yeah, so it's probably both. Uh, like most, <laughs> I don't mean to be evasive, but like most, most things, it's complicated. Um, it, it, people would see it as a strength in that if you come to Western, you get a very personalized experience. And I think that the personalized piece is actually gonna get more important as we go forward. But it'll be, the personalizing will be more on the academic side. Right now it's on the social development side that it so, feels such a lovely place to be. So you make lifelong friends, all those great things that happen to you when you're a traditional age student. It's a liability in our ability to compete nationally and internationally. So uh, in Canada and across most of North America, you're rewarded for scale, unless unless you're like Caltech. So Caltech has like a few thousand students and a gigantic endowment. If you got that scenario, you don't need to be very large to be world-class. But if you want to be world-class in Canada, the way the government funding works and the way tuition works, you really have to have scale. So University of Toronto is, I think, approaching 100,000 students across three campuses. Uh, University of Montreal in Montreal is something like 80, 85,000 students. McGill is 45,000 students, et cetera. We're at around 35,000 students at Western, and that puts us, um, it, it's, it's a robust size. And, and we'll have alumni out there who will think we shouldn't grow at all. But I have this wonderful graph that shows the growth over the last 25 or 30 years, and the, still, the slope is pretty steep. Like we've had, we've had to continue growing. And I think we should grow some now. Not across all programs, we should be smart about it. Um, but there are opportunities out there, I'd say. And I think the, the scale-wise, in terms of your research productivity, your ability to like mount international programs, uh, all the things you need resources for, uh, you have more difficulty doing that the smaller you are. You spent a lot of time thinking through how the process of the strategy was going to work and how you were going to engage the various constituents within the school. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure, and I would have probably done it differently, Sharon, if I uh, weren't pandemic, right? So <laughs> some of this is uh, pandemic uh, driven. But I also didn't want to stick our heads in the sand and say, well, when the pandemic's over, we'll start thinking about strategy. So. You know, new presidents like me, you know, you have a mandate, and if you hope for renewal of that mandate, you, you, you have to have 
fish in the boat. You have to show that you're moving the institution forward. So I didn't want to just delay for a couple of years. I think, that, I think that would be wise. And also, to go back to your very first question, I, I felt like the Western community uh, wanted these, dis, these strategy discussions. Like, I've never worked at a place where people go like, I'm ready for that discussion. When are we, when's that going to start? So I find that pretty thrilling. People are like thinking big picture. I think that's great. That's a good sign for our future. So um, on the engagement piece, it's very important that everybody who wants to, and not everybody wants to, but everybody who does want to, has an opportunity to participate in some way. There is this like overly large committee, 36 people, uh, and we're going to have them uh, sort of um, broken down into groups, and they're going to do defined tasks and projects as part of the uh, strategic planning. A lot of it is listening. A lot of it is just giving people a chance to say, hey, I have this idea, and having them be heard and having it recorded, and we will put it all into the mixer. It's not to say that you'll... We'll make a, you know, we'll make a ratatouille of like everything that's in the refrigerator. Like it won't be like that. It's more um, everybody has their chance to have their say. And then this team of people that we've assembled, and we assembled it in a very democratic way. Uh, I have a lot of faith and trust in teams like that. Uh, when I've done other leadership strategy like this, if you trust people to do a good job, people will really rally to the occasion. Like I'm not worried that people will you want to drive the drive the ratatouille truck off the cliff. I don't think that's what will happen. People will have really sensible um, ideas. They'll have good ideas. And then when we take it through the governance process, the Senate and the board, um, we'll have the courage of the community. People will feel, oh, I was heard. My team was heard. My department was heard. My institute. And they'll go like, right. And they may love some parts of it and not others. For me, um, it's important that it be a big picture. It won't be a blueprint of like how to build the next house. It's not like that. It'll, I hope it will be, I hope, will be inspiring. Uh, and it will give people permission to experiment and to test things and to try things and to take some risks. Not crazy, stupid risks, but, you know, good, smart risks. And um, basically to engage the community and make them feel like, wow, Western's on the move. We could do stuff. And we won't dictate to individual faculties or departments, you should do this, you should do that. What do I know? Like, they're experts in their areas, in their domains, as it were. So, but we will challenge them to say, okay, if we're going to up the game in this domain, what does that look like? What resources do you need? How can we help you? Uh, and I have a lot of faith in, in, in this kind of process, actually. Well, I can say so far, so good. It's been uh, really interesting. And yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it should be fun. It. Yeah. I think it'll be fun. One of the interesting things that you just did recently was you made an announcement that you were putting in somebody full-time to focus on university partnerships. And I know we have lots of partnerships today, government partnerships, business cover, uh, partnerships, even some university partnerships, other universities that we're very close to. How do you see the role of partnerships evolving in the future of our strategy? I'm just going to go back to the earlier question about um, university funding and, and what will happen with governments. So across North America, more pronounced in, in the U.S. than in Canada, that you're seeing it now in Canada too, a gradual decline in the funding of higher education, public higher education by governments. I don't, I don't think in my lifetime that's going to reverse. I think it's going to continue. I don't see it precipitously like falling off a cliff. I just think it's in a long, slow decline. And it has to do with um, perceptions of our value to the society, but also a sense of governments have many other obligations. And now coming out of the pandemic, they're going to have massive debts that they've got to grapple with. 
They've borrowed lots and lots of money and they're going to have to grapple with that. Um, so maybe it's the American in me. I'm now a Canadian citizen, I hasten to add. <laughs> I would like to point that out. But maybe it's the American in me. I don't like the way in which Canadian universities are so dependent on government for their funding and for the way in which we kind of trade off our future for the funding that they will give you. Because as I've said for a long time in my career, governments will give you money to be good. They will not give you money to be great. Because from a government's point of view, if you're good, they say, wow, that's a, I got to move on. I've got hospitals to build and roads to build and teachers to pay. So if you're good, I'm okay. So what, what I think that places like Western um, really need to do is develop alternative revenue streams uh, in a serious way. And that's very hard to do. It's easy to say and hard to accomplish. But um, there are ways to do it. Um, intellectual property innovation is a, a key one. The other one is partnerships where you're working with private sector, NGOs, could be the World Bank, could be the UN, could be a, a bank, could be, you know, many, many other kinds of uh, partnerships. So uh, I've asked our, our provost, Andy Rymack, uh, who really understands very deeply and has a long track record of uh, industry partnerships, to take over a role uh, for partnerships in the green economy and sustainability. And these are areas in which he's uh, a deep expert with a deep track record of success. And I'm super excited to think that we're trying to position Western for the green economy. We think that a lot of funding is coming for a green economy. And I'm trying to position Western so we're ready to go and we're ready to take it, take a, to maximize the opportunity, I would say. I'm really happy to hear about uh, the green economy and sustainability in particular, which is a huge area of focus for our business school, but I know across the university, an area of great strength. Um, maybe I'll just end on one question that I think a lot of the listeners would want to hear about, which is, what is the highlight that you've seen in the pandemic? It's easy to focus on some of the challenges that we've had, but what would you want to highlight as just something that just blew you away? Uh, I talked earlier about the resilience of the team. I think that's incredible. For me personally, um, I haven't been on an airplane since March, and uh, this is my ninth year as a university president. University presidents uh, never stay home. <laughs> we're, we travel all the time. And there's a certain exhilaration about seeing alumni, partners, whatever, all over the place. But um, it's really um, coming as it has early in my time at Western, it's given me a, a very deep appreciation for the quality of what's going on at Western. I think that if it hadn't been pandemic times, I would have been in Hong Kong, I'd be in London, UK, then I'd be in New York, I'd be here, there, whatever. Um, and I think I would have missed out on just the deep appreciation I now have for the research that's going on, the comprehensiveness of that work all across all these beautiful faculties, um, and for the loyalty and devotion of the faculty and staff. I think I have, I really have been put, I've been stayed put, and that's meant a lot less time in you know, airplanes and trains and all the rest, and more time to kind of absorb what makes Western special and extraordinary and what I think gives it such a great future. And that's been fun. Um, that's kind of a, 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 you know, in a difficult time, that's been a bonus for me to, uh, to see what's going on uh, really up close. That's been fun. Well, Alan, it's been fantastic to have you here today. Thank you so much, Sharon. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you again to President Alan Shepard for joining us for such an engaging conversation. Certainly with Alan at the helm, the direction of Western and the future of higher education in Canada is in good hands. Take care and thanks for listening.